Greetings, cyberspace, and welcome to episode 85 of the Double Density Podcast with your hosts, Brian and Angelo. Double Density, your home to tech tales and paranormal primers. So I um, like to start things off with a very interesting kind of follow-up to one of our stories last week, if you'll allow me, Angelo. I will allow it. Remember how we made fun of people for sending faxes? We did. I had to send a fax uh, a couple of days ago. <laughs> of course you did. <laughs> uh, so I got a letter from our federal government. Um, and because of the mail strike, uh, the posted date on it was like mid-October, but it only literally showed up like, I'd say like maybe a week and a bit ago. And uh, so there were three ways in which I could respond to the letter because um, they asked me to fill out a form and send it back. Uh, uh, a fax, email, or in person, or like like writing back to them. So and you chose fax? So let me walk you through the entire situation, right? So in person would have gone and uh, because uh, Canada Post can't guarantee delivery dates, um, if I decide to like get it tracked and stuff, wouldn't have reached um, Ottawa in time. Okay. Email sounded like a great move, right? Like the website yeah, that they use, except they have to confirm your identity and you can only do that from nine to five. And I work in an open concept office and usually according to my dad who uh, calls the government all the time for this kind of stuff because uh, he is an accountant, he was telling me it's at least a half hour wait, if not more. Oh, great. Okay. So that goes out the window. And they also have to verify, even after you sign up on the internet f- through the Services Canada website, they still say the last step is you have to call us. Huh. Interesting. In order to like get access to a place where I could upload or enter uh, details of a form. So needless to say, I am a chump. I <laughs> went across the street to our uh, Staples, um, which is like an Office Max, and I just... Uh, did the deed. Uh, it was really weird though. Cause I got there and right in front of me was a man who was, uh, faxing. I'd probably say like 40 ish oh. pages, but in, in three to four page bursts. So I guess he was getting out his like missives for the week or his like newsletter needed to go out or whatever, but it was very weird. And, um, yeah, I guess so. And the, the woman there was really nice. The, the clerk there, she tried to get him to allow me to just fax my one pager and he refused claiming that it would interrupt his process. Well, you need to get that fax out. You don't ha- want to have the government calling you and threatening you with a robocall. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Demanding money from me. Uh, yeah. Anyways, I feel like a bit of an idiot. Uh, I hate you government. I guess I'm on a watch list now. Yep. And I had a, a run-in with fax machines, too, uh, watching an episode of Earworm by Vox. Uh, they were talking about smooth jazz, and uh, they mentioned how people in offices in the 90s used to fax in their requests for uh, smooth jazz songs. Uh, lots of Kenny G going on over there. I could respect that. Yeah, but the most requests did come from offices with fax machines, and it was for smooth jazz. Very exciting. <laughs> like what what is the one kind of thing you wouldn't want to hear like what do you mean like musical style like apart from like smooth jazz like smooth jazz is a good idea but like what else would you want to like well the thing with smooth jazz they're they're actually talented jazz musicians but if you watch the video they they talk about how they kind of were like the sellout of jazz because it wasn't complicated enough it was you know jazz is uh, I understand when people say they don't like jazz. I like jazz, but I get it when people don't like it. Like for for example, I was listening to jazz today. I'm like, you know, I can't do this right now, and I just popped in some like pop music. But were you listening to Fatboy Slim? No, I didn't listen to Fatboy Slim. Uh, oh, all right. Well, I I switched to to Sigrid, who I've been uh, <laughs> I've been pushing on you for the last two weeks. You've been pushing on everyone. Yes, that yes. is correct. Uh, anyway, all that to say, I I'm not a big fan of the smooth jazz and. However, uh, I'll take smooth jazz over the garbage you try to peddle on me sometimes. Is that a reference to our Halloween episode? Yes, it is. Perfect. Uh, Moving on from faxes to children, because of course you're insufferable and can't wait to talk about your offspring. You want to talk about uh, their their consummation habits. It was just just a little anecdote I had uh, getting ready for bed tonight. I I let them watch some YouTube and my daughter was watching on uh, my giant iPad. And she was just staring at a blank screen well, like when the video ends. And it was, she was staring at it for a good five, 10 seconds. I said, what are you doing? I'm just waiting for the next one to start. And then I had to explain to her, I don't have autoplay turned on because I cannot stand autoplay. Do you like autoplay, Brian? I don't mind it. It's called letting it ride around here and we let it ride a lot. Really? I know. I don't trust yeah. the algorithm. I, I tend to watch very specific kinds of, of videos too. So generally what YouTube serves off is something I will watch. Faxing things to the government? Yeah. You watched exactly. lots of how-tos my, on that yesterday? My freedom of information requests yes. everywhere. Yeah. yeah. My pages and pages, but yeah. So uh, would it have been creeper had she turned to you and said they're they're here or like whatever? No, but luckily they didn't do that. Uh, and, yeah. th- and then my son asked me if uh, Zebra Gamer 
is a real zebra? The answer, of course, is yes. <laughs> is he a furry? No, I don't think so. Oh. <laughs> Open-ended questions here on episode 85 of Double Nancy. Let's stay with the video game thread, though, okay? Are you cool with that? I'm cool with that. I, I like video games. So we have a pair of really interesting stories this week. One of them, the first one from technologyreview.com from Will Knight, all about how Uber, yes, the ride-sharing service, um, has cracked two classic 80s video games, um, so Montezuma's Revenge and Pitfall, uh, through a new type of AI algorithm that teaches memory mapping, which I thought was kind of interesting. Did you ever play those two games when you were a kid? Yes. Yeah. I remember uh, somebody pulling them out on a on a floppy disk on a some sort of computer of the times. I can't remember what it was. I played Montezuma's Revenge that way, and I did not understand it. And you still don't, do you? I haven't played it since then, so like mid-80s. And okay. I did love Pitfall, though. I thought that game was so cool, and it was like you were going on a real adventure like Indiana Jones. Right. So one of the interesting things about this um, sort of like new AI uh, algorithm is the way in which it approaches these games, because traditionally other people have tried to teach AI how to play these games. And what they do is um, sort of like a reinforcement learning kind of reinstruction. So you, you build and move on, whereas this um, asks for a little more than that. So basically, uh, though, the asterisk here is that the AI was getting help from human players and that they were highlighting interesting and important areas. Um, so kind of uh the you know machine learning but at the same time like we're guiding that hand yeah and uh, alex Erpan of uh google wrote a blog post about this saying that he doesn't think they're kind of working this the right way and it won't really end up being useful in the long run because of how they're helping out this ai yeah so i think it's still like assisted assisted or not it's doing pretty good and uh we're helping these robots uh, slowly take over everything First, they came for our video games, and we said nothing. Then they came for our ride-sharing services, and we said nothing. And now, here we are, Angela. <laughs> now, Uber is going to use these eventually to basically get rid of their entire uh, business model of uh, paying people to drive their cars and touting it as a sort of really good way to earn some income. So they're basically kind of getting rid of that side of the business, aren't they? Yeah, and I think too that uh, as we've covered driverless cars here before, and that's not a uh, nearly a a perfect kind of science, but I feel like as that progresses, I do feel like Uber will have a more uh, vested interest in teaching those cars how to sort of uh, navigate both uh, the passenger side of things as well as the uh, road mapping side of things. Double density. So I feel like this is almost like a video game heavy uh, um, episode of Double Density because the next story we have is something that is very, very amusing uh, to me. So a couple of weeks ago, it was announced that the uh, PlayStation Classic was going to run on an open source emulator uh, in order to serve players' games. And um, let's just say that like encryption and protection weren't uh, of the highest level of importance for uh, Sony and company because of the fact that people have discovered that if you plug in certain types of keyboards and hit the escape key while running a game, you hit the debug mode. And uh, there's a bunch of things you can do there, such as turning, because most of these games are running on PAL and they're sort of running a little sluggish. So uh, you can turn them back to 60 frames per second NTSC. You can also uh, insert scan lines, which did, never existed uh, in these games because these, of course, are mostly run on uh, newer televisions. And uh, the source code has been dumped. It is running on an Android distro, and there's 8 to 10 gigs of free space. And so people have been uh, up and about on Twitch uh, playing games uh, through the modified PlayStation already. So that's kind of an interesting kind of facet. Literally, this this system has a hack me sign on it, pretty much. I'm thinking here that Sony really didn't put enough care into this classic console, uh, anywhere near as much as Nintendo did with their NES and SNES consoles. Do, do you think they kind of rushed this to market to kind of compete with Nintendo? I do believe this is what we call a classic pump and dump, pump up the stock and dump it uh, once it is out in the open. I do believe that they did not care nearly, like I'd say like 5% probably of what Nintendo cared about for their own respective um, consoles. Like it's clearly just mismanaged. It's weird. Like when the games list came out, I thought it was weird, I guess because they're paying um, Square Enix so much money to license like Final Fantasy VII, right, for example, as well as Metal Gear Solid, that the other games on there, like Cool Borders 2, and uh, one of my favorite games, uh, which I was unable to find up until now, it's on the uh, PlayStation Classic, uh, the Intelligent Cube. Um, but I feel like it's it's a lot of like second stringers right here. Very much so. Uh, the thing with Nintendo, right, is they own their own 
games and they're the ones people want are the Nintendo classics. So that's the, that's the thing Nintendo has over this. And even though they're both Japanese companies, Nintendo is run very differently from Sony. Um, and yes, yeah, Nintendo's a lot more like I. I'd like to say like Nintendo's like the Apple of Japan. Yeah, I could I could kind of see how that goes in terms of protecting their IP and their reputation. And like you know, they also had a, a, a sort of crazy leader when Yamauchi was there, and then uh, Satoru Iwata took over, who, who kind of changed things slightly. And now, um, I, I honestly could not tell you who the current Nintendo president is. I, I know I know who Reggie is. He's the North American one, but I can't tell you who the Japanese president is. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Well, if only there was a machine that could tell you who it is. I, I guess I could look it up, but it doesn't matter at this point. Uh, I know who... Ladies and gents, unprepared podcasting live and direct. Well, this, is, this is all off the cuff, Brian. Uh, no, I know. I know, I, I know I who know. Shigeru Miyamoto is. He's pretty cool. He knows who you are. He knows who I am. That would be pretty awesome. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, look, Nintendo put a lot of work, seemingly, into those consoles, except getting a lot of stock out there. That's the one thing they didn't manage to do. Yeah, but I feel like that was intentional, like first wave, right? Nintendo intentionally hold back stock? How weird, right? Shocking. (laughs) It's it's like they've never done that in the last like 30, 35 years. And you're super happy with your consoles, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but now I feel like I might have to get a PlayStation Classic just to hit the escape key. Yeah, that'll be fun. The, the other thing, they didn't even put the DualShock controllers in there. They just put the regular old PlayStation ones. Yeah, they don't even work apparently. So, <laughs> well, It's no rumble, nothing. It's, it's, it's really sort of half-assed if you ask me. Yeah. There, so a part, so part of the dump actually from the source code is revealing the games that they tested on there. So Battle Arena, Toshin Den, Ridge Racer, et cetera. So like there's a bunch of games that never made it to the actual list, but they actually just tested them just to see how they were apparently. Oh, that's really interesting that they still left that in there. It's so sloppy. It's really, <laughs> it's ridiculous. I'm really, really not surprised by any of this. Um, it was a half-assed launch. There's a ton of stock still out there. People are, um, have been men- mentioning on Reddit and other places that they actually uh, accidentally bought two, hoping that like this would be a scarce item. I mean, clearly it is not. No. So uh, shame on them. They're going to have to sell it for less. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. But uh, yeah, it just seems like it's just a, a kind of mismanaged project. And I do believe that at the core, right? Like they're, the properties that they have aren't first party. So therefore, the idea of a PlayStation Classic, it doesn't resonate in the same way that the Nintendo products did, right? Not even close. Uh, not like not even remotely close. Nobody really cares about these characters and games uh, as much as anybody cares for any Super Mario game. Yeah, like if you stack up like Gex or Spyro or Crash Bandicoot versus your Mario and Zelda, no contest there, buddy. Yeah, and and look, don't get me wrong, Spyro's cute, so is Crash Bandicoot. They're they're great games, but they don't have the recognition a Mario game has. Like, what would you rather play, uh, Gex or Punch Out? <laughs> I don't know. Like, I I definitely would probably pick Punch Out most of the time, but sometimes you just got to be that wise cracking gecko, man. Zelda. We're switching gears here from uh, the safe for work to the very not safe for work. So word has come down from uh, corporate overlords Yahoo that as of December 17th, 2018, Tumblr will no longer be allowing people to post adult content. Now, I don't know if you know this, Angelo, uh, Tumblr is filled with adult content. So you're going to laugh at me, but I didn't realize this. And I'm, I'm being completely sincere because I don't like I have not been on a Tumblr site really very much in the last like five years so you haven't noticed my uh, tribute tambler page to you no no i have not and uh yeah call me naive but i honestly didn't realize uh, tumblr had adult content is there a reason for that like i guess porn's fun right <laughs> i think there's also like a niche and like there's a lot of community related stuff there too right yeah do you know what vor is i have no idea what that is because <laughs> we're getting it real weird for a sec so vorophilia no what is that Right, so it's a fetish in which one fantasizes about um, being swallowed or eaten alive. Is this our paranormal segment, man, now? Almost, yeah. (laughs) But this is a thing that exists and uh, definitely uh, does thrive on Tumblr, right? And that's just one uh, sort of like niche example uh, amongst countless others um, that may or may not be wiped out on the 17th. Probably will be, let's be honest here. I'm going to have nightmares tonight, Brian. Thanks. Well, you know how it is, Angela, sometimes you got to live with things. So they want to ban human genitalia. And the weird one to me is, and I don't know how a machine would be able to verify this, but female presenting nipples. What, what does that even mean? I saw people joking about that on Twitter, and it's pretty funny to me. 
the idea that like some sad robot out there would have to try and figure <laughs> out whether or not nipples are like uh, like belong to a male or female is very weird to me. This is why the robots are going to revolt. So I feel like the reason why this has sort of happened is because like they got kicked off the Apple Store because of child porn problems, and child porn is an issue on the platform itself. Like, don't get me wrong, it is a very like serious issue. And I know we're joking a lot about a lot of this, but like at its core, there are certain communities that were allowed to exist. Um, unfortunately, serving this kind of content out there, but instead of going after that, they've decided to just like blanket ban everything and like hope it goes away. Do they not realize this never works out in a company's favor when instead of targeting a specific problem, they completely go after everything instead of just the one topic at hand. Well, I do get the policing is expensive and it is tedious, but you're just basically telling your platform's most fervent users to go away. These people are happily using Tumblr at this point, and now, what, in a few days, they're just going to have to pack up and leave and go somewhere. And I, I've noticed a lot of people just renouncing their Tumblr uh, account completely even though they didn't have adult content on their tumblr they're just saying you know what this isn't fair to the people that were using it that way if they wanted to use that way they're not hurting anyone as long as it's not illegal then why ban it yeah and as long as you confirm that you are of a legal age right like i think like that's a thing too that like understandably if you're consenting adults on the internet and you want to share weird images that in no way harm anyone I mean, just like, you know, like Tumblr, it really is like the epitome of rule 34, right? Yeah, there's, uh, if, if somebody's, what, what's, what's rule 34 again? If it exists out there, there is porn of it. Yeah. And if there isn't, there will be. Double density. Do you hear what happened with those apps that steal money from you when they uh, attempt to check your health? So I kind of, I've heard about this, right? And the idea is that if you, you're supposed to leave your thumb on for like X amount of seconds, right? And it switches ads very quickly. Yeah. It, it tells you that it's, so there's these two apps now in the app store. Well, they've been removed obviously because they were scamming people out of hundreds of dollars. Actually, um, the apps were called fitness balance app and calories tracker app. This coming from, um, we live security. It's pretty genius actually. Uh, tricking people into thinking that the Touch ID sensor on your phone can do something uh, that it really can't, right? It's basically just checking your fingerprint and that's it. But they're making it, they're making you think that it can actually determine a type of diet you would be able to get out of this app. Um, but while you're pushing your finger on there, it's basically charging you for a subscription. And because your your finger's already on the touch sensor, it actually authorizes the payment. And that's how they make their cash. Yeah. Now, this wouldn't work if you had Face ID because Face ID forces you to push a little button on the side. Um, so you'd see that they were scamming you out of money. But um, this is pretty bad. And, you know, people complain about Apple being a walled garden. And we always defend Apple by saying, well, because of that, you don't run into horrible scam apps. But look, how did this get past App Review? That is correct. How did it? Like, and heads are going to roll, my friend. I, I'm, I'm, look, I, I'm sure. Uh, Phil Schiller's losing his mind over this because it's not good. It's it looks terrible. In between that and the and the kid porn on the Tumblr app, this is unconscionable, Angelo. You're, you're not serious. Sometimes, Brian, this is serious. No, I'm not. <laughs> Stealing money is obviously a very serious thing. QAing and uh, quality control are very serious things. Yes, I do definitely agree with those sentiments. Um, speaking about QAing and QCing, the last item on the docket on the tech side of things this week is we are waving goodbye to Microsoft Edge's web browser. Uh, so it seems as though Microsoft can't make up its mind when it comes to how it wants its users to uh, connect to the uh, World Wide Web. Oh, goodbye. The last remnants of Internet Explorer are going to be going away. I, you know, I'm convinced they named it Edge just because they wanted to keep the same logo, right? I'm sure many people have said that. And I actually had to use Edge today, Brian. I had to use it for the first three months of uh, my current job last year. It was not great. Uh, suddenly, as soon as I started using Chrome, all of my <laughs> browsing suddenly just sped right up. Yeah, I was in a meeting and uh, it was all. It's what was on that computer, and I had to log into something, and it was not great. I didn't really, I didn't realize it was that bad, having never used it because it's just on the computer. And then I, I see colleagues at work using Edge just because they don't know better, and they don't know any better. And I, I, I like sometimes I actually almost get upset with them and ask why they're not using Chrome or at least Firefox. 
one of the other, you know, so the thing is that I think all, Microsoft has also understood this, right? So Edge debuted in 2015 and it's, you know, let's say like they're going to roll out their new browser next year, like theoretically, right? So it's a four-year lifespan for a web browser. That's pretty bad. Uh, even Internet Explorer uh, lived a lot longer, even though um, I would say Edge was probably better than Explorer. Explorer was uh, total garbage. But I remember Explorer like 11 here, like because I'm a, like an Explorer like four kind of guy. Yeah, I I remember using Explorer on uh, a Mac in 2001 because that's how Apple got Microsoft to bail them out. Uh, they packaged Explorer on every Mac. Uh, don't forget, Safari didn't exist uh, until a little later than that. But until then, it was Internet Explorer on iMacs. You want your mind blown here, Angelo? So Internet Explorer 6 was released in August 2001. Internet Explorer 7 was released October 18th, 2006. So my friend Edge has not outlived the transition between 6 and 7. That's really sad. So think about that for a sec. Also, so they're moving to a Chromium-based uh, web browser, which I think is very interesting because Chromium is, of course, the basis by which uh, the Chrome browser understands the internet. So in theory, this should be a faster, more compliant browser to use. For sure. Um, it's uh, it's going to be a lot better. Uh, are, you're a Chrome person, right? You don't use Safari on your Mac? Uh, I use both. use both, okay. I, I, yeah, yeah, I do. Like, I'm using Chrome right now because of our show notes being in um, Google Docs, but otherwise I usually use Safari. So my big problem with Chrome, though, is that at work, I uh, as soon as I log into Gmail, because I have it tied to some business stuff, it logs me into my personal browser, right? Yeah. Um, which is a problem that has recently come to service, and a lot of people are complaining about this, because I don't want my browser to identify me other than when I log into Windows. So it's kind of problematic. Yeah. And with that, my friend, let us close the book on the tech side of episode 85 of Double Density, and I will see you on the paranormal side of things. See you there. Computer, I'm a computer guy. Everything made out of buttons and wires. Double density. Welcome back to Double Dancing. As always, we are switching gears from tech to the paranormal. So the first things first, a couple of house cleaning items from last week's episode all about exorcisms, um, which I, so a rather pertinent story kind of popped up um, in my Twitter feed a couple of days ago, all about uh, one of our uh, favorite Quebec celebrities and uh, a surprising national treasure. Uh, yeah. And a surprising turn of events. So the Montreal Gazette is reporting and I'm going to quote directly from the headline. Cause I think it makes me laugh. Exorcist says Celine Dion's quote, gender free unquote kids clothing line is quote demonic unquote. <laughs> oh boy. Uh, oh boy. So a, uh, so Monsignor Jeff, uh, John SF, right. I think that's how you pronounce that. Um, is the founder of an institute that trains exorcists and is also an exorcist himself says, uh, has told the national Catholic register that Celine Dion's gender neutral, uh, kids clothing is, uh, marks of the devil. Like they're kind of like, if your kids wear this, they are walking around marks of the devil. Well, he, uh, he says people behind this are influencing children to disorder. Yes. It's, it's just clothes, man. My favorite part is the the continuation of that quote is, this is definitely satanic. There is a mind behind it, an organized mindset. Uh, I think the worst part about this is the name of the clothing line, which is Silly Nu Nu Nu. Yeah, I, I kept thinking that was a typo, but it's not. And it's all caps. I know. This must drive you crazy. Yes. Uh, so if you want to continue, I don't know if you had a chance to look at it, but the uh, comment section has one comment and I'm not sure because it's so ambiguous which way it goes, but someone said, uh, named Rock Chip has quoted, good to see there are still a few sane people in this world. Now, is he talking about the Monsignor Probably. or is he talking about Sinan? Probably. I don't know which one is which, right? So yeah, you know, it's just probably uh, thinking that Sinan's almost crazy, but uh, I have no problems with it. The only thing that like, and obviously you get to choose what you, you make your kid wear. Um, the one thing that bothered me is apparently like some of the clothes have like skulls on them, which is kind of weird to put your kid in. But guess what? Just choose not to buy that line and it'll go that away. That's correct. The almighty dollar, my friend. Yeah. Capitalism at work here. Sorry, Celine. The most, you know what the most satanic part about all this probably is, is the price tag. I didn't look at the price of these clothes. I don't know if it's out yet. Like, cause this is like a, uh, like the, they put a, a trailer out where Celine is like throwing like, I don't know, like cr- crushed up diamonds in a neonatal ward or something. Like it looks like she's like a, a really weird fairy godmother that's, that's just, just not, not working out properly. Yeah. Uh, no, uh, I don't really care. My, my, my son sometimes puts on, uh, my daughter's tutus and runs around with those. Oh, that's fine. And I don't that's care. Fine. He's, he's fine. fine. As long as he's happy, it's okay. Yeah. Like yeah. it really is okay. Yeah. 
And chances are the tutu costs a fraction of whatever Slynn's clothing will cost her. Very much so, I'm sure. Also, as a follow-up to last week's question, you had asked me, uh, hey, Brian, uh, what is the exorcism situation like in Quebec? And I did some digging around, and I couldn't find much, but I found a National Post article from 2011. So as of 2011, Quebec was averaging four exorcisms per year per priest, but we're not sure how many priests were out there. Double density. So this week we're going to talk about the skunk ape, but sort of in a different kind of way that most people talk about the skunk ape, right? Yeah. And uh, before he starts, Brian did a lot of work on this. Um, and I'm going to sit by and just add my color commentary. But before he starts, I <laughs> I did want to say, I honestly thought the skunk ape was just a smelly Florida Bigfoot. Like I thought it was what they called Bigfoot in Florida. No, it is it is a different man. And maybe because like of the humidity... He sweats a lot and is more stinky down there. Not sure. Right. <laughs> uh, but I honestly did not realize it was a totally different type of cryptid. So, yes, I know. I mean, the thing is that some people may argue that it is an offshoot of the traditional classic American Bigfoot, while others argue that it's an entirely different um, species. And they've only been spotted a handful of times, right? So the differentiation there is um, sort of hard to make, I guess, because you haven't either approached either um, creature properly, right? So I feel like it's it's kind of open to debate on that end. Yeah. So, like, uh, to start things off, I mean, the skunk ape is a smelly cryptid that seemingly exists to frustrate folks who live in the Everglades with its shenanigans, right? So, uh, a number of people have only spotted these uh, a number of times. So, the name is derived from the foul stench that the creature emits. So, people have described it um, kind of like rotting garbage or uh, methane, even. And his popularity amongst cryptozoological fans in the United States is only second to Bigfoot in terms of name recognition. Really? Like, that is something you, you I, I think. So, like, what other chupacabra would after? come to mind? No. <sighs> Yeah, but this is South American, right? Like people That's don't true. don't list off uh, the chupacabra as like their cryptid of choice in America necessarily. Yeah, and Nessie's not North American, so no, no. Okay, yeah, and yeah. Uh, I don't think I'd describe Mothman as a pure cryptid either, right? Yeah. Okay, you you may continue then. All right. So you may know that the skunk ate from uh, a photo attached to a note dated December 22nd, 2000, uh, sent to Lauren Coleman that has the skunk ape. You know the one I'm talking about? He kind of looks like he's like crossing the street and you just caught him like mid cross and he looks pissed off. Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah. So like there's like a flash. Um, so just to note too that um, Coleman runs the International Cryptozoological Museum, which we'll talk about in a bit. Uh, but have you had a chance to head over to the official uh, Skunk Ape headquarters website yet? Yes. Yeah, so the first thing I did was uh, scroll down to the bottom and indeed they have their copyright notice as uh, 2019. Do they know something we don't, Angelo? Yeah, because you mentioned that to me and I said, I have to look at this. And uh, yeah, so they're living in the future. They uh, surely are. Um, just as an aside, right? So I visited the site. So as a copywriter by trade, the inconsistent spelling of Skunkade kind of drives me insane. So I'm in the boat of believing it to be a two-word name for the creature, while the official Skunkade headquarters lists it as one. So I feel like they should get the standard folks. Like Skunkade, two words. All of your really weird merch needs uh, to separate the K and the A. And uh, just to drive you crazy, um, when I wrote it in the show notes, I hyphenated it. Well, that is your job here, is to drive me slowly insane as we do this podcast together, right? That's why you keep me around. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So Dave Sheely, who runs the official Skunk Ape headquarters, is a central figure to the Skunk Ape story. So he spent over three decades hunting the Skunk Ape. But apart from a few photographs, he's yet to provide a lot of proof of his existence. Like, he's one of the people who said, oh, it smells like rotting flesh, blah, blah, blah. Um, like, it smells like methane. So he had his first Skunk Ape uh, appearance at the age of 10 and has been hunting it ever since. You might know him from his stints on Unsolved Mysteries, where, like, I first saw him. So there was a whole segment about the Skunk Ape, which is how I came to learn about it maybe, like, 15, 20 years ago. Um, he's, like, driving around one of those big fan boats he's uh he's sitting in a high chair like a baby's high chair uh, it's sort of like you know, like a lifeguard's oh, okay. high chair <laughs> i was picturing him with a little table in front of him at a high chair no. <laughs> No, uh, sadly, it is. It's this like weirdly, oddly solitary kind of like shot of him just like overlooking the Everglades with his binoculars at one point. Sort of like that guy who's uh, at the edge of Loch Ness looking for Nessie. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, Shale has also, Shaley has also appeared on The Daily Show and more. So he does well as a spokesperson for the phenomenon. Um, few people are as committed to the skunk ape as Shaley is, right? So Shaley claims that there are like seven to nine of these almost seven feet tall creatures living in the Everglades. So he considers them a family and he's written a guide on how to bait these creatures through his decades of time spent on these high chairs in the swamps and driving airboats around in hopes of spotting or smelling this particular creature. So you can actually buy this guide online or through the official, uh, skunk ape, skunk ape headquarters in Ocho 
Shopee, Florida, where you can also purchase a uh, Rasta colored skunk <laughs> ape hat, wow. my friend. So if you're looking at getting that, that is definitely because yes, obviously I spent time in the merch store taking a look around, and that is one of the items that sort of jumped out at me as being a little odd. But hey, uh, different strokes, different folks, especially when it comes to the skunk ape. Should I be expecting a Christmas present to be arriving soon? I did the math. Hell no, my friend. <laughs> yeah, that's so. That's something. Uh, Merch, whenever like merch is so expensive for us to buy, and I don't think I would be spending that budget on Skunk Ape Hat. The other thing, too, is the shipping. Yeah, it's the shipping that kills us. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, it's definitely the shipping. Uh, so, I, getting back to the topic at hand, though, because we could definitely do a takedown, or like maybe we should do a closer look on the like the merch store there as like a bonus episode. But um, I can't vouch for the idea that the Skunk Ape is uh, Sheely's like sole source of income based on the exploitation. And I don't mean like exploitation in like a negative kind of way. I'm speaking more towards the notion of like merchandising this or these creatures, right? Because apparently there are seven to nine of them wandering around, but he certainly derives enough money from it to make it worth his while to keep the legend alive. But do you, you think he's kind of making this all up? Like he saw something once and now he's just kind of <sighs> embellishing. I believe that he believes he saw something. What that is, I'm not quite sure. It could be a very tall human. You know, it could be um, a homeless person. I'm I'm not quite sure what it is. And I'm not suggesting that Sheely's like a grifter either. We often talk in paranormal circles about how being able to profit from one's own personal journey like shouldn't be seen as as mere hucksterism or proof that something's false, right? Like, so we talked about the Johnson family in episode 44 and the Delphos ring, right? So they were taking photos and submitting them to magazines and winning cash prizes. But that doesn't necessarily infer that this was all a setup, right? No, not at all. Oftentimes with these people that become obsessed with one specific thing in the paranormal, it stems from an experience. And, you know, sometimes it can go well. It seems to be going well for this guy. And then sometimes it goes awry, like certain people that spotted aliens popping up in their kitchen window. <laughs> Who are now in prison. Exactly. Yeah. So, in fact, I actually think that Chile is providing a service to a lot of people by keeping, by keeping the Skunk Ape brand alive. Not necessarily just the legacy, but the brand, right? Yeah, it's it's become a brand. And like I mentioned to you, I totally thought it was just another word for Bigfoot. And uh, it's not. It's its own thing. And he's developed it into this, basically. It's it's kind of his baby. His own yeah, stinky, no, for hairy sure. baby. And I mean, he's been on TV a bunch, and I, I do feel like he derives a, a large part of his income from this. Like once, once again, like I don't know the per- personal inner workings of Sheely's life, but I feel like this is enough of a thing for him. And that sort of kind of brings me to my main point of tonight, which is what I want to talk about, which is cryptozoology tourism. Um, so it's kind of an interesting way to bring people together into places where you wouldn't naturally want to visit, right? So the Florida Everglades may not scream tourist attraction, but thanks to this. Uh, cryptid, there's been a steady amount of people going down there to spot what may be their crypto creature of choice, right? Because you're saying like, oh, I didn't know that this gun cave existed, but a lot of people tend to do and they want to see this thing, right? If something can create an interest and make people come to a place, why not? It's sort of like, um, I don't know if you you uh, you looked into this, but like Point Pleasant, people uh, go see yeah, for sure. the Mothman yeah, and exactly. stuff like that. Exactly. So I think the same thing also goes for the International Cryptozoology Museum in Portland, Maine. So Portland may not be like a huge tourist uh, destination, but I do feel like these are added value perks to being in the area, right? And in some cases, they become a genuine draw uh, all into their own. So the Fook Monster, also known as the Legend of Boggy Creek, um, is an Arkansas mainstay that has existed in pop culture realm since the early 1970s. So there have been a few uh, B-movies made of the exploits of this like regional monstrosity, like the like the monster of Boggy Creek. Um, so some of these movies are uh, slightly amusing, and there was a remake a couple of years ago, to some of them being downright slogs to get through. And as someone who has survived many creature features, I can tell you that they run the sort of full gamut on this. Yeah, for you to feel that about a movie? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, with some of the stuff you've watched. Uh, we we have to sit down one day. You have to pick like the the best movie for me to watch out of your obscure movie collection, and we can talk about it. Deal. I will definitely do that in the new year. Is that maybe we can even announce it ahead of time so if other people want to watch it. Oh yeah, that's a good idea. So yeah, so we could do that. Maybe have a little viewing club going. But um, so several websites of the Fook Monster slash like the Legend of Boggy Creek uh, point towards resources and places to visit in the area if you want to learn more about the monster. Right. So I feel like that boosts local commerce in a way that could be rivaled by the hubbub caused by Bill Clinton's Congressional Library nearby Little Rock, and uh, I have been there too. Really, you're you're a yes. man about town. Yeah, yeah. it was also incidentally, so I don't know if uh, American listeners know this, but if you happen upon a congressional library of a uh, former U.S. president and it is their birthday, it is free to go in. That's interesting. 
Yeah. Yeah. So something, so we, we got in for free because it was Bill Clinton's birthday because we were debating whether or not we wanted to visit a very nice security guard leaned over, told us that it was free to come in that day. And we did. Um, but the concept of paranormal tourism isn't just centered around cryptozoology, right? So like ufology definitely has a lot of these sites in the United States. So, um, I made a trek to the little Ailey Inn in 2014 while trying to cross the desert to go see Area 51. And while the inn was closed, it did not deter me from enjoying the experience in the facade, et cetera, et cetera. And then um, I succumbed to finding the Betty and Barney Hill highway marker in Lincoln, New Hampshire in 2017, which we talked about. And I'm certainly not the only one to have done so. I mean, you can research these things very easily, and there's a ton of people with photos of those areas. Yeah, it's still uh, my uh, picture of you in my contacts of you standing in front of the plaque. <laughs> Me smiling stupidly. Yeah, and I think that's actually the picture on our website of you. It is actually, yeah, correct. Uh, you and I both have outdoor pictures, which I think is weird. Yeah, yeah. But it's, I do feel like there's a difference between cryptozoology and UFOs. Um, it seems as though the notion of being able to spot a creature is much more immediate and sort of like enticing due to creatures being tied to geographical points. And unlike UFOs whose existence and lineage are more based on documented historical events that either occur in a single or a small number of places or events, cryptids stalk specific areas and exist as a sort of like metaphysical mascot for an area, right? Like picture, you know, Arkansas, uh, if it were a high school, you know, the legend of Boggy Creek is its mascot. Do the, is there a school with uh, with the Fook monster as uh No, sadly. So uh, the Fook High School mascot is the Purple Panther. Oh, too bad. So that, unfortunately, is uh, a missed opportunity, I do believe, my friend. Yeah, it, it definitely is. Oh, well, what are you going to do? So I feel like similar to like like ghost hauntings, a lot of these creatures have planted a stake in the ground and call a specific place home. So there's like a lack of like roaming cryptids. And by roaming, I mean like cross-continental creatures that we can peg as like a singular entity, like the same Bigfoot showing up, you know, uh, in Florida and then like showing up in Alaska, right? Because Bigfoot's different, right? It's it's not like one thing, like lake monsters. They're always like one guy, right? <laughs> one, yeah. One guy, yeah. one monster, right? We have, we have Champ, we have Nessie, we have... Uh, uh, the Memphis oh, the Ogopogo monster. monster. Ogopogo. Uh, Cressy. Cressy. Shouts out to Cressy. Yeah, we love Cressy. <laughs> and uh, people should go listen to our episode of Into the Portal to check out all about Cressy. I feel like it's an important thing to note. Yes. <laughs> but I, I, I do feel like there's a reason why, like, for example, like hearse rides, right? Like when I was in Savannah, Georgia, hearse rides were really popular because apparently like it's a very haunted kind of place. Um, the allure of undead kind of hangs high in the air for a lot of different places in the United States due to historical things, right? Yeah, they, the, you know... Although North America is nowhere near as old as uh, Europe, right? So there's a there's a lot of interesting things. I, I'd be curious to know what type of attractions they have in Europe that are tied to this. Because is it just me or Europe doesn't strike me as like a cryptid type of location? I think Europe in general is way less kitschy, I think, um, is the best way of putting it, right? Like they're less um, tied to uh, these sort of like <sighs> attractions that have like big neon letters attached to them right okay yeah i see that it's uh, europe's a little more highbrow than us north americans uh, yeah exactly well especially certain parts of the united states where that's all you have to sell in order to have people come visit you right that's true well certain parts of canada too i don't know if you've been like in rural yes. ontario but yeah, yeah true 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 um, I also feel like regularity is more prevalent with crypto creatures in a specific area that is ostensibly like their home. So for example, like aliens come from the cosmos and kind of like, let's put an asterisk there because we tend to talk about that um, a lot. So if we're going to follow the most prevalent line of thinking about what aliens are um, and therefore like uh, they don't, these aliens don't have like a space of their own to return to necessarily. I see the little pun you made there, space aliens. <laughs> exactly. So conceptually, cryptids call an area region their own and stay within the confines of it, though some theorize that they are world travelers. I don't actually believe that. Um, I feel like they stick to the rivers and the streams that they're used to largely. Let's like, and let's pretend that these are real, right? Like not pretend necessarily, but let's, let's, let's believe a bit. Are you ready, Angelo? I'm ready to believe. All right. So I feel like these monsters kind of stay sedentary due to notions of both familiarity and safety, right? It's easier to stay put when you know where your food supply and shelter are. And that's just kind of basic common sense in that way. Yeah, okay. That makes sense. All right. I'm done believing. Okay, good. Perfect. Let's, let's close that up for you and <laughs> throw it out of the way. Um, but that being said, however, there are certain places where things tend not to work out. So in episode 54, we discussed the railing movements now defunct UFO land. So it's basically like what, like 45 minutes Southeast of Montreal, more or less like where it existed. Yeah. And, uh, as I mentioned in that episode, I, I travel there relatively often, not to see the railings, but, uh, my mother-in-law <laughs> lives in that town. You weren't a railing envoy? No, friend? I was not. Sorry. That's too bad. So I'm I, actually a clone that well, I, 
it's funny you say that because as an aside, I've been reading about the Spider-Man uh, clone saga of the 90s, which is just a mess unto itself. And I won't discuss that here uh, ever, but it's something that you should look into if ever you want to get frustrated about cloning, my friend. I'm playing Spider-Man on PlayStation 4. Oh, well, there you go. Okay, perfect. That's the same so, thing, uh, right? Yeah, pretty much. Okay. UFO Land was, was meant to attract people to the region as well as draw attention to the railing movement, but ultimately failed. Why did it fail though, Angelo? I kind of have a couple of ideas as to like why that is. So the draw of the alien creator religion uh, didn't hold enough of a day-to-day grasp to it, right? Like the, there's no tenable kind of like a weirdness factor to it that you want to buy into the same way that you'd have with Area 51 where it's like a, a secret military facility or like a crypto creature. Like, oh, hey, I might be able to spot you know, uh, a Bigfoot or a skunk ape. Well, it's also off-putting because you're going to go there thinking they're going to try to convert you. Exactly, yeah. It also wasn't a space devoted to the concept of ufology, right? So it was a space devoted to ufology through the Raelian lens, right? So the idea of being able to convert them to your movement, uh, which is a rather narrow field by which to view ufology. So despite the gigantic UFO treehouse on site that I tried to buy off of Kijiji and they never answered me, there wasn't much more to attract the casual visitor, right? No, there's nothing there because it's... you. To want to go there, you kind of want to know what the Raelians are. And people weren't really interested in the Raelians themselves, they were interested in the UFO enigma, right? Exactly. They wanted to know what UFOs were, but they didn't want people saying, well, UFOs are this specific thing and this specific yeah. thing only. And so I feel like they didn't go broad, right? I feel like that's why people weren't interested in going out there. Yeah. And that's why uh, like area 51 is interesting to people to visit. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I do feel like there are a lot of uh, these kinds of spots out there that kind of, well, incidents or alleged incidents may have happened in those areas. They're broad enough to want to uh, interest general uh, people with general knowledge of um, a certain sort of like phenomenon. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense to me, actually. Whereas like, you know, going to UFO land is UFO land presented by the Raelians and then there's that asterisk there and it's like, come learn about Raelianism. It's really like, you don't want to be um, uh, shoved into a room and handed pieces of paper and taught things. You just want to learn about UFOs, man. It's like, a, an, you know, you go there for a day and it's like a nine hour timeshare invitation. Right. And it's like, we have gorgeous women. We'll take you around the cosmos. Uh, you know, we're just sex positive dudes and ladies. Yeah. No, thanks. <laughs> so um, that's kind of why I do believe that UFO land failed, but places like the Skunk Ape headquarters succeed. And why is that? I think that museums, tour sites, and gift shops give fans the chance to like congregate in their own time to explore their passions. So unlike paranormal conventions where interactions are more timed and limited, museums and gift shops are permanent structures in which people can filter in and out of um, their own timetable. And the employees there probably genuinely have a love of whatever they're trying to sell. Well, I kind of saw this to a lesser extent when I was in Salem, Massachusetts this summer. Um, everything has to do with witches there. Even though when you kind of look at the story behind the witch trials, it's horrible. And uh, yes. it's kind of... Historically speaking, absolutely, yeah. And, and it's kind of sad that, that they've, they've kept it up this long, but I wouldn't have gone to Salem otherwise. So right. they have all these little, and, and use the word kitschy before. It's really kitschy. Like, yeah. uh, you know, we were, we went to this little museum where they had these animatronic things and everyone who like, we were there because in a few days we were living, leaving for Disney world. And all we can think about was how terrible these things looked when you compare them to what we were going to see in a few days. And you also took your kids there. Yeah. Well, they, they, we had asked actually. Uh, ahead of time if it was too scary for children and the w- there was one that uh was so we didn't go and there was one that was a little more history based and not as scary for the kids and uh it was so fine. there were no no burning effigies anywhere no uh but it smelled weird it was in a basement <laughs> it was really weird uh, it was uh, fine i think but it was yeah weird. you you survived yeah you and your was, family all survived it was really like if I can say like episodes of like the X-Files started with these types of tours, it was, <laughs> I was expecting to find something odd down there and it was really weird. Like I wouldn't want to be down there alone. No. Despite my non-belief. Uh, thankfully you had your entire family with you. Yeah. And that was, it was a very strange place. It's kind of like this weird thread, right? Where like, you don't believe in these things like exorcisms and demons and witches, but you don't want to be alone. And why do you think that is? Well, because your mind run, runs away with things. I've I've mentioned it before. I've been reading uh, Monsters Among Us by Linda Godfrey, and I was reading a chapter about how people are in bed 
sometimes and they see the Egyptian god Anubis just show up. After reading that, I woke up in the middle of the night and I didn't want to look up, uh, look out from bed because uh, I was scared. I'd see this weird dog creature out there, even though I knew my rational mind was telling me, hey, dum-dum, that's not going to happen. You'll probably just see your cat. But because, you know, you're in a weird state when you kind of wake up in the middle of the night, anything could happen. You tell me this, and now I feel like since I have your address, I need to do something about this. No, please no. Then then who is phone, my friend? Wow, that's a big callback (laughs) that... Uh, people have to go back to like what first episode, ten episodes or, four, or something. Yeah, <laughs> just the idea that I'm I've, I'm calling from your home. Yeah, but yeah, coming back to kind of like the the matter at hand, right? So like these museums, uh, these tours that you can take, right? Because there are a ton of oddity tours that you can take everywhere, right? So when I was in New Orleans, there are a ton of ghost tours you can take, um, and I feel like these are spaces where like minded people can gather together swap anecdotes and discuss theories, right? As well as keep in touch in meaningful ways that the internet can only be a substitute for. Like there's a lot of these kinds of things and like there's a huge amount of Facebook groups and uh, shouts out to my boys and girls over at the above top secret forums, which have turned to a mush over the last like decade or so. But the idea persists that these physical interactions strengthen bonds and allow you to meet people in a way that you aren't necessarily mocked for, right? Like, cause like, for example, like if you, well, that's maybe not the case because they know you, but if you started a new job and you tried to explain, like, I have a skeptical interest in UFOs, in cryptids, in ghosts, in shadow people, like, I feel like there's a level of judgment that's still there. There's still that stigma attached, right? We're like kind of like when you visit these places, it's already understood that you are dispensing with that stigma because you want to be able to sort of uh, interact, not necessarily um, in a way that like makes you seem as if you believe the phenomenon, but you definitely show an interest in it. Yeah. And, and it always just comes down to it being fun and these types of museums and locations and all these things are fun. It's fun to kind of think about why people are looking into this so much. Dave Sheely takes it really far. Uh, I mean, he's made his entire life about the skunk ape. And I don't know if that's something I would ever be able to do, but he's he's done well for himself, apparently. And does he really believe in it at this point? Has he gone over to a point where it's just become part of his persona I would hazard a guess, and maybe I'm being unfair, but if he found out that the skunk ape was not real, he would not reveal that. Like if he, that's a no-win situation for him. Yeah. So if he, you know, if he, if came down to it that he had the proof that this was actually an escaped orangutan or something, I would say that he would probably not put that out there and just continue no. thinking that it was a skunk ape. And maybe that's unfair for me to say, and that's like the 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 mean skeptic in me talking, but. <laughs> I think there is an intersection of uh, commerce and capitalism as well as belief here that can render things difficult. Like I'm like before we weren't saying that like um, hucksterism, uh, like the idea of like sort of like commodifying your beliefs into being able to to earn cash doesn't necessarily preclude the fact that like this has uh, happened. But the other way also works, right? Yeah, uh, something that I've been taking away from that Linda Godfrey book actually that I mentioned before. A lot of the stuff she writes in there is is actually she's including letters that were written to her, talking about people, uh, quote-unquote, regular people that see these strange things. But these, quote-unquote, regular people were listening to her on Coast to Coast AM, and already the fact that they were listening to Coast to Coast AM kind of puts them in a category in that they're open to believing in these things, For sure. and that maybe that's part of why they saw them. And they always say, well, I don't want, I don't, I, you know, I'm not making money off this or whatever, but you're getting some attention. And what do human beings love? They love attention. Oh, for sure. For sure. I think there's a subset of people out there who definitely do crave attention. And one way they can drum it up is um, through being included in these communities and making these claims that they can't substantiate, right? So I, I do feel like there is a section of people out there, unfortunately, that do exist in that way. Uh, that is not to say that everyone who has ever seen or claimed to have seen something definitely belongs in there. But I think to ignore the fact that these people um, exist uh, would be a disservice to a movement. Well, I also, I also want to say that it's not it's not a bad thing that people want attention. They can want attention. It's fine. Uh, it's right. just that's why we do a podcast. Yeah. Well, look, like we, we want attention, I guess. But uh, as much as we say, oh, we don't care about how many people listen or whatever, it's it's still fun to know that people are listening to us blather on about these things and saying Absolutely. that we don't want attention, even though we do want attention. <laughs> but the and like I said, there's nothing wrong. It's totally fine. For it's sure. just you have to be 
self-aware enough to realize, okay, I may say that I don't want money or whatever, and you're not going to get any money. Like there's no money in the paranormal, really. Like it's, it's like, there's like the top 1% that make money or whatever. And then it's other than that, it's just people just working away and writing books and stuff. And they're still getting some attention and notoriety. And that's, that's interesting to people. For sure. And I do think like this kind of ties into our conversation last week about demonology too, where some people unfortunately do want attention. Um, and then they think the best way to get it is through being able to sort of discuss the fact that perhaps they're possessed. Right. Yeah. And, and look, speaking about attention, Brian, where can people find this on the internet? <laughs> Facebook.com slash double density podcast. Same thing on Instagram. You can head over to, uh, Twitter to see us at double underscore density. Also, you can hit up double density.net. Click on the contact button. Take a look at our pictures. You'll see my Betty and Barney Hill marker picture uh, that we discussed earlier in this episode. And I do feel, Angela, like that was a good move and a good way to end this particular episode of double density, my friend. And, and people will not find me on Facebook. You can write to me on Facebook. I have a file. I have a, file. <laughs> I have a, I have a Facebook account. But uh, I don't really answer it. Uh, you only check it when I tell you to check it. So you, you tell me to check it, I guess. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, if you really need to reach me, uh, just uh, hit me up on Twitter. You'll find my Twitter account. Uh, where will you find my Twitter account? Angelo Furin. That's my uh, Twitter handle. Wow. Did, did you actually have to remind yourself of what yours was? Yeah. Yeah. But you can also just go to our website and click on the Twitter link. And uh, if you want to see uh, a slice of my life, you can always also go on my Instagram. I like my Instagram. It's fun. Which is? It's also Angela Furin, but also just oh, click on it from the website. That's the easiest way. <laughs> As for me, of course, you can hit me up on Instagram at BrianMCL and Twitter at Brian Hasty, B-R-I-A-N-H-A-S-T-I-E, Angelo. And let's bring things to a close. Tune in next week as we spend a week camping out in Rangelstrom Forest. Angelo, pass the binoculars, please. I think I see a lighthouse. <laughs> see you around, dude. See ya. NES and NES classic consoles, respectively. You want to retake that again? Why? Because you said NES twice. No, I, I said SNES. It, it sounded like NES twice. <laughs> NES and NES, NES and NES, NES and NES, NES and NES. NES, and NES.